This is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. I will be talking today with Tanya Odom, who works on issues of diversity with universities, corporations, law enforcement agencies, schools, and nonprofit organizations. She has worked in countries across the globe. Uh, Tanya, welcome. Thank you, Steve. It's nice to be here. So uh, can you just sort of to, to give a, a, a sense of the uh, range of the work that you are involved uh, in, and we'll come back and talk about those things in, in more detail? Sure. I think it's actually a really good question because when you say to someone that you work in diversity and inclusion, that could mean so many different things. Um, so if I give examples of some of the client projects I'm working on right now, I am working with a very large not-for-profit um, organization and getting their diversity strategy off the ground, getting sort of the goals in place, getting the leadership on board, creating a diversity committee. With a couple of other not-for-profits I'm working on, I'm working on creating, helping them with their diversity committee. So maybe facilitating some of the sessions, maybe giving the diversity committee members a deeper dive on some of the topics. What are some of the trends across sectors? And in a couple of companies, um, depending on where they are in the um, in their journey around diversity, equity, and inclusion, in one place it's actually um, really again creating a strategy. What do we want to do? And I know we're going to talk about this later, but particularly in the current climate of the pandemic, what does creating a strategy look like, right? When you talk about inclusion, what does that look like? And then I'm also a leadership coach and most of my clients, actually all of my clients right now are women and many of them are women of color. And so just working on leadership development, um, making sure that um, I'm acknowledging the systems that they're working within versus looking at them from a deficit model. So those are a couple of the projects I'm working on right now. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when, when did you first know that um, social justice work was important to you? It's, it's an interesting question. I don't know that I ever didn't know that issues of justice or fairness weren't important. And I think by the, because of the way I grew up, um, in the family that I grew up in. So as a biracial woman uh, growing up in the 1970s, going to anti-nuke rallies, I, that was just part of what we did. So I, we never named it as sort of social justice, but I knew that helping people, I knew that there, things weren't always fair. Um, I knew that pretty early on and just had been really fortunate to be able to do the work or work that connects to those values. So it really just was part of who you were and who your right. family was. Um, but, but also your, your, your parents were involved, at least in your early years, in, um, mm -hmm. in that work. Yeah, I mean, so my, you know, my mother is a social worker by training. My dad did conflict resolution very early on. Um, and as an African-American man, he was working in environments. You know, he passed away um, a little over two years ago. and. It was sort of fascinating to go through and see that he had had a contract with a certain transportation company 
in the 1970s or 80s when it just was so rare, um, still in some places, rare for people of color to get those kind of contracts. Um, and, you know, for the first seven years of my life, my parents ran a drug rehab program, which was a residential drug rehab program. So we lived in an old converted convent in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and um, we had our own floor. But it meant that my sister and I were exposed very early on to things like family meetings uh, where everyone in the community would come together, where we would eat oftentimes on the floor where everybody else was eating. So I would be eating with 40 or 50 people of all different races, of all different backgrounds, um, which is very interesting from a model perspective, by the way, because, you know, I, I don't, my this is because we come from a multiracial family and then you lived in this complete bubble of an environment with so many different groups of people. I think what we started to see or see things differently was when we moved out of that space, when the program was closed down and we sort of were living in a quote regular house in a regular neighborhood, not around 50 people. But, but um, one way to, uh, that I, I wonder if you can think of that for seven years as you were, mm. you literally were living in social social justice and action. Um, uh, oh, absolutely, oh, absolutely. I mean, or just or in a, in a very you know like a kibbutz or like a commune. Although I have to say, I, I think I said this too in one of our prep calls, but you know, I always have to say we were not in a commune because people hear a multiracial family, they hear 50 people and they forget the part that I said that my parents ran this program. Um, but it, I mean, there's so many lessons from those first years, including, by the way, I think my ability to, and not only my ability, I want to be clear on this, my need for community, which is very real to me in terms of, you know, I live in, um, I'm sheltering in place, working from home right now in Manhattan. And, you know, when I go out, it's seeing the doorman downstairs, it's seeing the bodega, people who work in the bodega, it's seeing the people on the street in addition to everyone else. My community in my world is all of these people. And that's always been the case for me. Um, and I think that's because I grew up in community, which at the heart really is about um, justice and fairness and getting along and what you know, how do we live together. So. Well, I also know just from the work that we've done together, you create community um, in, in your work as well as with your colleagues. It's, um, oh, thank you. It's important. So, uh, was college one of the, the, the first times when you were actually sort of doing uh, programs or just or uh, and um, folk, uh, what was that like? Uh, and in terms of being at 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 a college, and um, were you involved in social justice? So I actually think I was really for, I think high school, um, and I've been thinking about that a lot more lately. I went to a high school that we were the, it was a high school that it's Townsend Harris High School, which was a high school which has an incredible legacy and history. Um, it used to be all men, and there were sort of alums who graduated like Jonas Salk and Herman Woke and really reputable, well-known people, and it reopened in 1984, and I was part of the first graduating class of Townsend Harris. And so, again, I was in a very small community, intentional community, and I think that language is important, focused on the humanities, um, where, again, New York City Public School, which I'm always very proud to say, 
where um, I found a little bit of my leadership voice there. I mean, I know I did. One, I was believed in. Two, I ran for office there. I had a friend who created a puffle program where we actually went out with these puppets her mother created to do sort of drug awareness. I was in Students Against Drunk Driving. I mean, I was, so I think I learned a lot there. Um, I also, because it was so small and I had access to the principal, um, I think it was also a place where I was very aware that I needed and wanted to connect to authority. And so it wasn't that the principal was there. And I, I, there's an interesting story around that because I've been talking to my high school principal a lot lately. Um, James Baldwin passed away when I was in high school and we were in the car and my mom was driving us to the high school, which by the way, in itself is interesting because my sister and I went out of district. So those people who are listening who may not know the history of New York City schools, when we talk about issues of social justice and fairness, the, the lines by which we were district, where you were allowed, where you were allowed to go to school was very rigid at one point. And so, you know, my sister and I began going out of district in junior high school because my mother was able to get a variance. And I say that very intentionally because we were living in a predominantly black community, a middle-class black community in Queens. And then in order for us to go to a school where we felt we could learn better, get, that had more resources, we had to go to another part of Queens. Meaning we had to leave our community. So we might not have had the words for what that looked like, but we were very aware that there were issues. And then the other thing I remember, and this, I'll come back to the high school story in a second, but in middle junior high, junior high school, most of us of color were going down the hill, literally, to South Queens. And then you had other kids going up the hill. I also only had one African-American kid, a male, in my class because this was, quote, a specialized class. So the reason I say that is because I think sometimes we don't always think young people are picking up on these things. And even if I didn't have the language, I was living it. Um, fast forward to high school, I'm coming back to the James Baldwin story. James Baldwin passed away. My mother's in the car saying, you all should go to the funeral. It's in Manhattan. And of course, I'm a teenager, so I think my mother is absolutely just out of the realm of like whatever she's talking about. But I listened and I went in and I asked the principal if the next day we could go to James Baldwin's funeral, which was going to be taking place at St. John the Divine, beautiful cathedral in Harlem. And the principal basically said to me, how do you think this is going to happen? And it was because I was in a literature of the 60s class in high school. Anyway, fast forward, it happened, and my sister came to, and as did the literature of the 60s course, and I can literally visualize not even knowing the magnitude and the power of James Baldwin and his voice, but having read some of his work, but that's something I'll treasure forever. So what did that teach me about this topic before I got to Vassar? I think was just like, you can ask questions. And, oh, you, um, you. You, you you ask questions you, can push. And you, you you probe so let me <laughs> let, move, let me move on and actually sort of go to um, your senior year in college and what was going to be coming next because as I recall you had a conversation with a dean yeah and he um so when I was graduating I didn't know what I wanted to do and he said to me you need to get paid for that mouth quote, unquote. Um, and he was the Dean of Student Activities. He's someone who I worked with a lot when I was in college. And he connected me to the Anti-Defamation League, um, a world of difference program. Can you describe he had, 
Tanya, if you can just describe um, what the Anti-Defamation League is and particularly its World of Difference program. Sure. The Anti-Defamation League is one of the oldest civil rights organizations in the country, founded um, really to focus on Jewish issues and um, in, their, in their sort of motto is to secure justice for all citizens alike. And I had not heard about the Anti-Defamation League. Um, but the A World of Difference program is one of their education programs that really um, forward-thinking, uh, well-researched, developed program by people who are educators and who had been doing anti-bias work for quite some time. The model is that they train facilitators and the facilitators then go out and do the work uh, nationally, globally, in schools, et cetera, et cetera. So that was one of the first places that I did this work court formally, right? I did activism work at Vassar, but this was a formal classroom curriculum type of, of work. And then when you, you graduated, did, did um, you move on to, to work with them as either a contract person or an employee? Both, actually. Um, part, yeah, I did both. And um, with Robin Sclafani and I, we helped in the peer training program, which is exactly what it says, a program that trains young people to train other people. We brought that to Europe, where it's now still happening and still um, they're training young people around Europe. So, so um, that was right after college. And I'm just curious, how, how did you get there? Um, I mean, how did you go from just being a student at at college to getting that, that, that position right, right afterwards? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think having, um, I think we spoke about this. I've been really fortunate and blessed to have people who've believed in me and who will stand up for me, write letters of recommendation for me. And I, and I know that had a lot to do with it. Um, I'm also really passionate about the work. So I would imagine, although I don't remember that interview, <laughs> I would imagine that I was pretty passionate and um, determined as well. So it's really two things. It's you and who you are and your energy and your commitment and your professionalism, but it's also, um, it's also, about having people believing in you. Um, Absolutely. And that's actually, um, I think I said this to you on the phone, but you know, that is something that I think is one of the things that some of us of pr who have this pr privileges take for granted, right? That I wasn't, it wasn't decided that because the color of my skin or because of my learning ability, perhaps that I was counted out or because I might have been homeless or be all these things that I've worked with young people who've been literally counted out because of. So I don't think I always thought about how fortunate I was until you start to hear stories of young people who didn't have anyone in their corner or who were told that, you know, they would be in jail or they would be just like their parent who's in jail. So I don't, I don't take that for granted. And I do think some of us who've experienced privilege on some form, in some form, might not always see that. Yeah, well, I, I think, in fact, there are lots of people who, um, whether it's by, um, by, by wealth or, um, mm -hmm. or that, uh, by race, um, mm -hmm. if it's, mm -hmm. it's hard for people to see the privilege and, um, and just uh, you can take it for granted that the next step is going to come. And of course, yep. that's not true for everybody, but it's but it is true for some.
So after mm-hmm. after working for some time from ADL, you ended up going to Mexico? I did. I ended up um, working for one of those community-based organizations that's under Save the Children globally. And I worked in helping to translate some of the communication that came in from Americans who were sponsoring children. And I also was really incredibly fortunate to be able to go out in the field with a lot of the people who did the work on the ground, um, which of course is what I will always remember, um, and just see what some of the money was going towards, some of the projects. I would go into schools, I'd go into, we'd go into people's homes with the health coordinator. I mean, it was, it was an incredible opportunity. And, um, and were you um, speaking Spanish at that point? Um, I had, I, I mean, I had taken it in high school, taken it in college, but I wasn't fluent by any means, but I got by, I mean, I watched a lot of novelas and for people who know what they are, those are Spanish speaking sort of soap operas where you watch them and you get really drawn in. And I would, I remember watching the news. I watched a lot of television when I lived there, just picking things up. Yeah. And then, um, somehow you ended up in the Dominican Republic after. Sure. Yeah. So the, yeah, that was, so I wanted to be, you know, this is, I don't know, whoever's listening, I, you know, I didn't do the Peace Corps because two years sounded too long. And what I now look back on and see is I could have done two years someplace, right? Because what I happened after Mexico ended was I really was not happy and I wanted to go back and I wanted to go someplace else where I felt I could make a difference and continue to learn Spanish. And, um, what I call the Catholic connection. So my mother reached out to people and a a priest friend of hers reached out to a priest friend of his. And I ended up going to live in the Dominican Republic in something called um, La Posada del Buen Samaritano, which is basically um, like the Ronald McDonald houses we have here. So people come in to get medical care and we take them to the public hospitals and through the public hospital system. And then nurse them back to health, et cetera, et cetera, in the house with meals and, and things like that. So the, the translation is the Inn of the Good Samaritan. That's what, that was the and, and how long did you spend doing that work? Uh, it was another six months. So that, that was a total year. And then I came back to the States. Um, and back to, Manhattan, to uh, New York City? Back to New York City, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And... Uh, at some point along the way, you decided uh, a graduate program wasn't going to be worthwhile? I did. You know, I had applied to graduate school in my last year of college, was waitlisted, then didn't get in, and then didn't think about it. I started graduate school and um, because I had been working more around policy issues. So I was running a dropout prevention program in Manhattan. I was doing a whole bunch of things, working with homeless shelters in New York City where women and children were living, um, which at that point in the 90s in New York, we just, the numbers were unreal. And there were all these policy issues. So I originally thought I would do urban studies, change my mind. And a friend said to me, you should look at the coursework um, at, at Harvard Ed School, the Ed School, and I did, and she's she was right. I mean, you know, every single course that I would have wanted to have taken was there, and so I went and I studied educational policy, and so it was sort of the whole degree is administration planning and social policy. So a lot of the social policy things I wanted to learn about more, I did. And, and did you 
um, it seems like along the way you've both had people um, wanting to to help you or uh, people that were just really important to you. Did, did, did that also occur at the, the Harvard School of Education? Yeah, I mean, Harvard at, at the Ed School is where I met Mel King, who to this day is one of my mentors. He's um, a civil rights icon, although he'll probably shudder with me using the language of icon, but- In the um, Boston. In the Boston. In the Boston area, yeah. He's, he was in the series, the civil rights documentary, Eyes on the Prize. He was the first black person to run for mayor in Boston. And um, he taught a course my first semester. And what's interesting is years before, Jonathan Kozel had been a speaker at college and people had wanted me to talk to him. And they said, ask him about grad school. And he had said, I would rather you go and work and speak to Mel King. It just didn't occur to me. This was many, many years later. I'd taken a five-year break. And Jonathan Kozol was a uh, is a remarkable um, educator and um, creator of different approaches, and has done wonderful work for decades. Well, and wasn't for me. He wrote about you know Rachel and her children. I think was the book where he was writing about some of, some of the issues that were happening in a New York City community, right? And he talked about homelessness. So I was fortunate to meet him and read his work. And and the connection to Mel King has been one of the blessings of my lifetime, just in terms of social justice, but in terms of really seeing what a leader is and does, um, seeing how humility and love. He has a quote, which is, love is the question and the answer. And I keep telling him, I'm not there yet. <laughs> but when you have a mentor who says that all the time and who literally like exudes this compassion for the world, it kind of rubs off on you, <laughs> whether you're a cynical New Yorker or not. It just does. So, But, but it, it just also is striking. And I, I, I don't think we're, this will be the last in this interview of um, talking about somebody who, who wanted to help you and, oh, yeah. and trusted you and believed in you, and yeah. uh, and that's uh, it's it's really quite remarkable. But but mm -hmm. but then then there's the the time that, um, uh, where you started working in in large corporate America, which. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, the first time you told me about that was a, su a surprise to me and maybe it was a surprise <laughs> to you when you started. How oh, yeah. No, no, the last thing I would have thought for myself, the last thing would have been to be working at a management consulting firm on Madison Avenue and having most of my clients in the late 90s be on Wall Street, having to wear a suit every day. That would not have been what I saw for myself. Um, but, you know, so it really was me doing diversity work being good on my feet, being passionate about the issues. And then someone, you know, talking to me saying, do you want to talk about working here? And I was sort of thinking I could never work, here. like I couldn't even understand what that would look like doing diversity work in corporations. And, and I don't have a business degree. And, um, and she was a woman who to this day believes in me and basically met with me and told me her concerns, but then said, listen, I was doing a lot of what you are doing or have done. And I hear you're good on your feet. And so, you know, she said, I mean, she, this conversation is one that I've talked a lot about publicly, but she said some things that were so powerful to me in terms of those of us who are willing to do this work and have difficult conversations. 
And she told me that because I do look white, I present as white. And she said, people are going to think you're white um, here and know what that means. And, and then she also said, you have a really elitist educational background and people here will value that. And I think about that all the time from, you know, people who are worried about having the difficult conversations about race or gender or all these other things. Like she said it and named it for me so that in essence, so that my transition to working with her would be easier, but also that it would be easier for me, right? That I wouldn't be sort of startled by all of these things. So, so I need to um, have a quick break so people know um, who we are. Uh, you're listening to Change Agents on WERU. I'm Steve Wessler, and I'm talking with Tanya, o Tanya Odom, who works on issues of diversity and inclusion, both in the United States and across the globe. So um, when you were working for this um, large, prestigious uh, consulting company, were you doing um, workshops? Were you trying to do planning? Was it all the above? Yeah, I mean, so it was all of the above. And by the way, that's part of the uh, wow factor for me because I had not been doing anything in corporate. And all of a sudden I, we were doing, literally, I think like week two, I was doing focus groups on Wall Street for a company. And we were doing training sessions for some of the large global banks, um, you know, working on communication. I mean, I remember one project I had, which is funny now, but I literally had to count the number of clicks it took to get to information on so-and-so bank's website around diversity compared to others, right? Like projects that now seem so old, but, but a ton of things related to diversity. And by the way, I just want to say this, that's the first time the language, I, that's the first time I was comfortable and aware of how important it was to talk about diversity as a change process that it's not a training program, it's not a tick the box, it's not Tanya or anybody as a speaker, it's a change process. And, and that is a different way of framing this work for me. And, and by a change process, it's obviously a, um, a, a large uh, mm -hmm. change process, but it also means that mm -hmm. people need to change and be willing to, to, to look at themselves. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. No. And, 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 you know, that it's a process, which means there are structures that need to be changed, right? I mean, there, there are so many parts of what a change process is, but I think in many corporations, and I would say I, it's not fair to only say the private sector. I think we could see this in not-for-profits too, that I think diversity was seen as either, you know, historically marginalized people's jobs, right? Or an HR initiative, or we're going to bring in Steve or Tanya to do a session versus wait, let's look at our talent processes and how we recruit people. Let's look at who's in leadership. Like there, there are so many questions, much more than a month or a day or one training session. You know, I, I, there, there certainly was a time uh, when uh, I simply stopped using the word diversity because the moment mm -hmm. I would say it to really to almost any group, um, uh, I felt like I, I was, I was losing them. They were, they were getting anxious because they thought somebody was going to come in and tell them that they were um, racist and they were um, bad people. Um, and yeah. so, so um, I know you don't do it that way. Um, and but, but, but how did you get acceptance from a group of um, pres presumably primarily white um, executives and? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think I just want to note that your comment about, especially because this is called change agents, that the language of diversity is still not, I mean, it's still a pretty contentious sort of co topic of conversation, right? Because private sector still uses diversity. Now, there's the language also of inclusion and belonging in the uh, corporate private sector space. Whereas in the not-for-profit social justice world, you're hearing language much more around equity, you're hearing language that, that actually moves away from diversity um, almost altogether. And I think I sort of you know, straddle some of those worlds. I don't know that it was me that got, um, I, I mean, I think, look, I had really difficult sessions, right? I mean, I did sessions around the world at points where I was a young woman, one of the youngest consultants at that point. Yes, mostly predominantly white. I think um, some of the harder ones were not just in the private sector. Um, I've done some educator sessions that were really hard too. I think that um, I knew I knew the work. In other words, I knew what would be important that we have that we needed to talk about. Um, I know how to reframe things well. I think, and I also think I use myself and my own stories which I never thought it was a big deal, but just to, I don't, I'm not perfect. I commit microaggressions, right? I make assumptions and I have privileges. So what's my learning journey been and, and unlearning journey been and how do we do that? I think people who do this work are not, I don't think anybody understands sometimes what it takes to get up in front of a room with people who don't want to be in front of you for a topic that you really believe in, how, how hard that can be. It can be really, really hard. I, I, you, and there are two things you said that I think are critical. Um, and uh, one is, how are you framing this issue? Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, and that is huge. And also, uh, not just that is storytelling is so important, but occasionally telling a, a, a story um, of a time when you did something that you really wish you hadn't done. And it can really change change a room at that point. Yeah, I agree, I agree. And, and you know, um, I learned early on to acknowledge where people were, right? I mean, I think even now, whenever I'm doing a session now virtually, I acknowledge what people might be holding and carrying, you know? So um, that, that to me, empathy is big. Um, but, but of course, particularly back in the early days of doing this, now it's sort of commonplace for someone to do, to go to a diversity or equity or inclusion training or racial equity training. That's not the way it was. And most of them, the sessions that we did in the 90s were mandatory. And so, you know, the research now about mandatory sessions is pretty mixed. Um, in fact, some of it says, you know, there's not as much learning or absorption. But I think it really, people really heard that we were going to come in to your point and say they're racist and sexist and or that um, you know something about them, this scarcity mentality and something about them not having the, the access or the jobs or the status that they would have, that they have had. I think that was also felt sometimes. You know, I, in working in uh, corporate America, I assume uh, that you had conversations, maybe focus groups with women. Um, were you hearing the, the kind of stories that, you know, have ended up as the Me Too movement, uh, but years before? 
Yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, yes, and more actually at that point were stories of exclusion, right? Because the, the 90s, when people, so many people were doing well financially and, you know, it was where people went out to socialize. It was how people socialized. It was what women were doing to protect themselves, knowing that it could infect, like they weren't going out to this restaurant, this bar, this whatever. They, you know, places where, I'll never forget some of these stories where, they would take their clients out to this golf club, right? And it turns out the golf club still had a policy of not admitting women. So the, the women had to meet their clients in front of the golf course. Um, fast forward years later, I went to another golf course or country club community, and they had a legacy and history of not inviting black, you're not allowing black people, which, you know, black people and Jewish people and other groups have not been allowed in places like this, but here we are in this place where up until a couple of years before hadn't admitted black people like this is just surreal. Interesting story about, you know, when I talked to the women, you know, I did a lot of work um, on Wall Street and, you know, the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so people view me as younger, right, even though I'm not, but I had to wear a skirt to eat in the um, executive dining room at a place on one of the places on Wall Street. I mean, that's really, now when I say that to young people, they're like, what? Like, I can't even imagine that. But, you know, that's in this lifetime that that was part of it. You had to wear a skirt to get in, just like men had to wear a tie. It wasn't that we had to wear a suit. You had to wear a skirt to get into the executive. Well, there's some things that have changed. Yes. <laughs> so you, you, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, a significant part, part of what you do is coaching for for women and uh, with a significant portion of that being women of of, of color um, mm -hmm. uh, are, are you doing that i mean we're not talking about right now when we're all on zoom but are you doing that face to face or are you doing it um with people across the world um what's it yeah it's, in it's interesting i mean i most of the people that i coach actually prefer face to face We've always, I mean, all of a lot of the coaches, we've always offered virtually and some people like over the phone, but, um, you know, I think it depends on who you work with, right? So I work with mostly women of color, many white women, but mostly women of color. And I think there's a lot about trust and intimacy and, and connection and getting to know someone. And I... I've found that although I offer virtual, even before this pandemic, um, most people want face-to-face. -face. So that's been around the country. Um, and, and you know, I used to have, yeah, so if I go, if I had a client in California, I would go once a month to California to do the coaching with them and then one phone call a month. Um, it really depends on who's paying, really. And I think what's interesting from this perspective is sometimes women of color don't want to have their company pay. This actually has happened to me over the years, I've been coaching for close to 13, 14 years, that they don't want it there because, because people often feel that this would be perceived to be a deficit. Mind you, many, many CEOs around this, the world have one or two coaches <laughs> that the company's paying for, but women of color have sometimes felt that, I don't want someone to say, oh, she wants a coach because X. So sometimes women are paying by themselves. Sometimes they're pay letting the company pay for a couple and then saying, okay, I'm done, telling the company they're done, but then paying me privately. So it, it sounds like a lot of, of the people you're working with are in, in the business field, I'm sure, and others as well. And um, what, is it, what is it that they need 
to, to know. I mean, what's, they're coming perhaps for a particular reason, but um, are there unwritten rules that they need to understand in corporate America? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's right now, several of my clients are women in um, not-for-profits, but, you know, it's why I became a coach because, was because, for many reasons, but we would be doing um, executive interviews for organ, organizational-wide assessments. So you want to do a temperature check, how's the organization doing? And so you would do focus groups, you do surveys, and a lot of times with executives, you knew that their, their presence in a room would change the dynamic so we would do interviews and one of the questions we would ask is what are the unwritten rules and I was really taken aback after several years of like you would ask these people at a certain level what are the unwritten rules and they'd tell you right this is how this CEO works this is and then I'd ask women and people of color and there would be a totally different list from what say some of the male exec often white male executives said and I realized that I wanted to better my skills in helping people understand that gap, because that is why there weren't, there are many reasons, <laughs> structural reasons, but in terms of some of the, the issues that we might be able to control, that's some of the reason why there, there is a gap. Can you give me um, an example of a hidden rule that would uh, be really important for a woman of color to know? Yeah, so, if, so if, it depends on the company culture, right? But one that's pretty common is, if you're gonna be presenting something, this, this was really common early in my, coaching career, if you're presenting something in front of a large senior team, you're going to at least make sure you've touched base with one or two of the people so that they're going to support you before you even get into the room, right? Something like that. Another one that came up a lot is, um, you know, a lot of times women of color, those people, in general, people who've been historically marginalized, but women of color, there is a very strong awareness of needing to have things be done really perfectly, right? Because of the concern that they will then be, in fact, judged differently and and this is an extra thought process and stressor then people will say well that's how x group of people are so what you sometimes see is that there's a tendency not to share the information until it's perfectly ready right i'm going to hold on to this information um maybe the commissioner or ceo might want to see it but i'm going to wait until it's perfect and what sometimes the commissioner ceo is thinking or senior leader is thinking um, they're not communicating with me, they're not updating me, they're not working on it. Um, and so you sort of have this thing, no, actually this person's self-protecting for very good reasons, right, in some ways. Um, and I think the other thing that comes up is because often traditionally people who are in leadership were the ones given coaches who tended to not be people of color, women of color, when I first start coaching, there were also women of color who the company would offer them a coach and they would say, I don't want this, you know, I'm being marginalized, this is a negative, like, whereas other people were like, sure, give me more hours, <laughs> right? You know, I see this as a benefit. But if you're constantly having to worry about being perceived to be different or less than, then, then this offering of a coach and co- you don't, people didn't have as many friends who had a coach or who knew a coach. This was so rare for people. And I have a person who I'm now friends with who literally said, I wasted three months of time with you because she was so angry that her company told her she had, she should talk to a coach. Um, have changed a little in this one. I mean, it's, it's more accepted. Oh, completely, completely. It's more accepted, but I will say, um, you still have some people who don't want the companies to know they're seeing a coach, right? You know, um, they're still, I still hear that. Not as, not as strongly as I did in the beginning, but you still hear that. 
So um, over the past several years, I know you've been doing uh, a significant amount of work on issues uh, affecting women for the United Nations. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, uh, can you talk a little bit about what, what that work is? Sure. So the UN has a very public gender um, equity pledge where they would like to have all of their organizations. So people think UN and they think of the building in New York or the building in Geneva, but the UN is actually made up of many organizations, World Health Organization, UNICEF, all of these things, all of these organizations. And so there's a pledge that by 50, if, that the organizations across the board will be 50-50 from a gender parity um, perspective by 2030. And so I started working with UN Women um, and it just really took off. I it was incredibly fortunate. And what I did have been doing with uh, about 16 UN entities, and, and that's been in about eight countries, which is, it, that's it felt like a whole other degree in learning about gender, gender policies. Um, so what I've done is I've worked a lot with leadership on things like unconscious bias and microaggressions. And then I've done these, um, what I call grouping sessions, but I think people frame them as women in leadership sessions where I bring some of the women together and, and talk to them about the things I would talk to people in coaching. What, what are some of the hindrances? You know, how, what does networking look like for you? Do you have a mentor or sponsor? So I've been doing some of that, um, but I've done it in places where um, some of the conversations with women has just, have just been acknowledging what they're experiencing, like working in Burundi, which is, you know, been in war and, and what that looks like for some of these women who are on the front lines. So I think my agility and my um, mindfulness around being where the people in front of me are, I think helps me too. But it's been a, a really wonderful experience. So when you, when you fly off to a place like Burundi where you've never been, um, what do you do to prepare yourself um, to to do your work or are the issues often at their core similar between different countries? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think, I, I mean, I, I'm a, you know this too, but I do a lot of research. Like I, research is really important to me and I worry sometimes that people think that those of us committed to these issues don't do research and that couldn't be further from the truth. Like I, I, I'm good on my feet and I do my research. So I did research. I spoke to several people in the organization. Um, and you know, that's important because the people I spoke to before I went, when I was just trying to get a sense of where people are, they said, look, most people have lost someone here in Burundi, right? Most people have lost more than two people. We've been at war, you know, that, um, just going into that conversation is not going to be the same when I, than when I'm, as when I'm in Geneva or, you know, another place that's sort of stable politically, people have what they need. Um, you know, I was picked up and dropped off in a, in a secured, whatever, bulletproof, you know, van, truck, um, and felt that I was safe. Like, I didn't leave the hotel compound and the, the, we had the session there. So that's very different than me being flown to a place where it's this, you know, a city and I can walk around freely and have time afterwards to enjoy myself. It's very different depending, but I, but I would answer research. And I actually think your question is more powerful than me people think, because for me, it's respectful to the people and the culture where I'm going 
to, for me to do some of the work and not just expect someone to sort of um, have, you know, send me a packet of information or something. I, I think it's, it's really important. And uh, when I think back on my work, I often spend significantly more time mm -hmm. researching where I'm going, which is usually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking to people mm -hmm. that I'm actually doing and trying to solve whatever the problem is. Um, mm -hmm. it, uh, it's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think about some of the work we've done together. I mean, I think it's really important to highlight that, that we're going, you know, I, I, I don't take the fact that people have invited me in and brought me sometimes from across the country lightly, right? I mean, in some ways, some people think I'm too, you know, I get too worried about it. But, but I think about some of the work we did in Northern Ireland, or even in Israel, and I, we had to know the background, like, and not just what we had sort of read about in mainstream media in the United States. I think we, if we didn't, I don't know that we would have been as of service to the young people that we were working with. Uh, I agree with that. And there's, there's a risk that you can make a mistake. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. sometimes you can't bring that, bring that back. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you, you're, the, what's remarkable is the number of different things you've done. You know, you mentioned implicit bias, mm -hmm. done lots of work on that. But, but I, I want mm -hmm. to step back and what's the, What's the one or two or three hardest parts of your work? Mm, yeah. And actually, before you answer that, uh, I need to let people know who we are. You're listening to Change Agents on WERU. I'm Steve Wessler, and I'm talking with Tanya Odom, who works on issues of diversity and inclusion in the United States and across the globe. And um, sorry to interrupt you. An no, no, they should know who this is. This is that's important. I, you know, this is a hard question for me. I, I think, and you and I talked about this, and you were helpful with the language of vicarious trauma, which I had known about, read about, but had not thought about that in terms of our work. Um, and how you know, would you Well, just sort of somehow vicariously, often unconsciously, absorbing some of the trauma um, that people who I'm working with or talking to have experienced. Um, and knowing that I'm a, an empath added to that, right, which probably there's a connection there, but, you know, I, I've heard horror stories. I've heard of people being treated incredibly unfairly my entire 20 plus, 24 year, five year career. Um, I work with young people who, literally have so many gifts and talents that may be seen differently and no one took the time to learn about them and they have scars for that right I mean I think that's it I think even in the coaching work now with women who are sometimes older than me or my age you know if we don't acknowledge and this is connected to the COVID-19 pandemic if we don't acknowledge that the structures are not and have not been fair to every person we're missing a huge piece of the puzzle so by the mere fact that i have a job that looks at the fact that the structures aren't fair that here's the stories i mean i remember doing a focus group in the 90s with latina women and um hearing some of the things i was hearing that they were experiencing and then i was just on a call the other day with 
uh, Latinx civil rights organizations talking about the fact that Latinx women are experiencing sexual harassment in general at such high proportion rates because of oftentimes the jobs they're in. Plus right now, because many people don't want to say anything if they have a job, particularly a job, a low wage job, because they want to keep it. And I, and I had this moment listening to the call the other day on this webinar where I was thinking, this is what I heard in the private sector in the 90s in a very different way, but people wanting to keep their jobs. And now we're hearing the same thing, if not magnified, right? Which is, by the way, some, a quote that I heard, people are saying the pandemic is the equalizer, whereas other people are saying, no, it's a magnifier. Um, I don't, I don't know how you don't let some of that get to you sometimes. Like I, I, someone said to me once in Silicon Valley, how do you, because I was asked um, during the last three, four years, and even before when we started to see sort of more of the videotaping and sharing of the um, killing of um, our black men, I was being asked to go in into organizations and hold space and have conversations with people. So I was in Silicon Valley having a conversation with a group about the issue of children being separated at the border. And mind you, this is, I just want to say to people listening that what we do is not always speaking. Literally, I was facilitating, right? There might have been five slides the whole time. I was listening and facilitating a conversation. And someone came up to me in the middle and as I gave them a break and said, um, how do you hold it together? And I said back to them, you mean in front of the room, right? <laughs> because back in my hotel room or on the plane or back home, you know, I'm not always together or presentable or speaking so eloquently as some people say. I think I'm human. Um, so I don't know that I answer that specifically, but I, there are many stories that have been shared with me, um, life experiences that are not fair and that highlight some of the structural inequities that you and I both know exist and those can be very hard to hear. And you know, uh, let me just end with this piece on this. What also is hard to hear is then you have people denying it. Like I just, I, I shouldn't probably say this, but I just got a, a letter, a thing from a client they wanted me to review. Th this was last week, Thursday or Friday. We're, so we're already in this pandemic for how many weeks? And the letter said something like, COVID-19 seems to be impacting communities of color more, seems to be, which to me is completely disconnected from the data, right? Which I, of course, sent them 14 links, three webinar recordings, et cetera. But just listen to what that does. It minimizes the impact on communities of color when we know we have the data. That's not a Tanya data point. That's actually facts. So I think I could, you know, that's hard. That's sometimes hard and frustrating. So that's um, a long answer to your question. Well, okay. <laughs> it's an important one. And a, another part, I think, for all of us is um, when you look at your work, are you seeing enough progress? That's a really important question. Um, I don't know. I was part of a webinar as a participant recently about women of color and white women in the workplace. And I just, in general, the feeling on the call, which resonated with me is not enough progress, particularly around race. I think we made some, we've made strides a little bit around gender, but actually very um, binary gender conversations, right? We haven't necessarily made strides or even understand or embrace some of the challenges of transgender women say, right? You know, constantly when I do my work, I sort of have to remind people that these definitions aren't always inclusive that we're using and, and I try to make my language and stories more inclusive. I, I think that's a, a really important point there. 
there are places that I've worked where um, uh, transgender people are are not going to be hired, um, or, or not going to have uh, be admitted. Um, yeah, that's I mean, it's important. Um, so you started to talk about the coronavirus, what all of us are are thinking about. And I still, on occasion, will have um, somebody say to me, the coronavirus is the leveler. Um, it's, it doesn't make a difference about your, um, about your race. It doesn't make a difference about your, um, about your gender, about your, uh, how much money you have. And, and at some level, there's, there's some truth to that. People can die. But, um, but how do you respond to somebody who says, God, we're all in the same place with mm -hmm. respect to the awfulness of this disease? Mm -hmm. So we're all experiencing this, but we're experiencing it differently. And I think that's it, right? So, and then I think I talk about, it depends on who I'm talking to, but just um talking about you know i've been on six seven eight i've lost count number of webinars that have to literally um talk about the disparate impact it, like ha we have to break it down for people so i was on this call that i told you with latinx civil rights organizations and one of the latinx civil rights organizational leaders said five out of six latino latinx hispanic people have to leave their work they have to leave their home for work right so when you look at the number of latinx people that have been disproportionately impacted, that's because many of them are essential workers and they have been you know, designated essential workers and have to continue to work. Um, when I look at places like New York City and what parts of New York City have been really impacted, you can't, you can't not acknowledge that, that we're talking about black and brown communities. And by the way, we have to unpack that because the framing that's really getting to me right now is, we're talking about people who have quote underlying conditions and the reality is they wouldn't people wouldn't have underlying conditions of diabetes or stroke or hypertension or asthma if they did if there weren't structural inequities of housing insecurity or substandard housing or food insecurities or access to healthcare so i think it's even the language that seems to be acknowledging the disparate impact oftentimes feels like it's not blaming but it's you know, sort of saying, well, those people were sort of had those conditions before, more of them had those conditions. Well, why, why, what's the why there, right? Which I think is really powerful. And then I think, you know, I was just on a call last week about the impact on the Native American community, of the impact of COVID-19 on the Native American community. And there is not, you can't have someone saying that their mother is still living without running water before the pandemic and during the pandemic and not see that as a systemic issue, right? That, that where many of the Native Indigenous communities are, there were issues before. You know, and I have to say, um, Mel King and I went after Katrina, we went down to Katrina tw uh, to New Orleans twice. And one of the, we did a lot of calls before and Mel had this language of we're not going until they invite us. And so we had many calls with groups. And one of the things someone said is we were traumatized before Katrina. And that has stuck with me forever. That New Orleans at that point had such a, a sort of problematic education system, et cetera. 
And I think that's the same case here. Not that people won't say they haven't been re-traumatized or traumatized more, but a lot of the people that have really been impacted in communities, they can list what was going on before COVID-19. They could list before sheltering at home happened. I just don't know that we were all listening in the same way or caring in the same well, way. Well, I'm not sure that, that we all are listening to mm-hmm. this in the same way. And, mm-hmm. um, and it certainly um, comes up on uh, leading newspapers every once in a while, mm. but, um, mm. but, um, but not in the, uh, not as regularly or in depth as it probably should be. So mm. to switch, switch gears, sure. um, what are you most proud of that you've done in your work? Mm. Yeah, I, got, I don't do well with that question whenever I'm asked, what, but it's a good one. So I should get better at it after all these years. What am I most proud of? You know, I think um, my ability to work in different cross sectors is something I never thought about early in my career. To be able to go from a Wall Street firm to a group of young people to a group in Europe, like it was something I did and I enjoyed, but I didn't see it as a skill set. And so I am proud of that skill set of, of, an ability to translate. Um, there was an article written, I think it was the Village Voice many years ago that was followed me doing a session. And they said she literally translates what some people are saying for what it might mean to other people. And I thought that was an interesting way to, to say it. I think the UN work, um, also again, I didn't think about it, but someone said it to me just um, working with as many organizations as I have and, and highlighting the language of unconscious bias and the ways unconscious bias might show up and that we can't just look to 50-50 parity without looking at culture change. Um, I think I'm proud of that. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of work. I, I did work in homeless shelters with women and children with the head of children's services. And some of that work is work that won't ever leave my mind. And it was work just about advocating for women and children in a very basic way in terms of education and giving them the best educational experience we could. And that's work I too am proud of. Well, I, I think it's a long list of what you are, you mm. are, are proud of. Um, and I, you know, when you talked about the, 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 ability to go into so many different types of work. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me that the, the common denominator for how you're able to do that in significant part is one, your experience, but, but that you're going to research. You're, 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 mm-hmm. you're not going to, you, you don't take for granted that the next place is going to be just like the mm-hmm. place that you were the right. I also, yes, and I also think, and you know this, I've seen this working with you and people who you used to have on your team, but um, I also think there's something about doing this work and showing up with integrity because, you know, some people, young people have never met a biracial person before, right? They never met, I mean, they just, we don't even know what is going to be important about the way we show up, so. Um, Tanya, we could go on for a lot longer. Um, uh, I think that the work you do, I know that the work you do is extraordinarily um, 
important in so many ways and um, and uh, I know that you'll continue to do this work. So thank you. Um, thank you. You've been listening to Change, Change Agents with human rights, uh, conversations with human rights and social justice advocates. My guest today was Tanya Odom, who works on issues of diversity and inclusion in a variety of settings across the globe. You can listen to Change Agents the first Thursday of every month here on WERU at 89.9 FM and streaming at WERU.org. And for everybody listening, stay safe.